And I remember standing on my sideline thinking, okay, one, two, three days and I should be able to get all packed up and get back to Los Angeles. My perspective is I would have never agreed to go on your show if I knew I had to answer this question. I probably should have oh, come on. in advance. I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> it was very painful to me, even today. And that was 30 years ago. Hey, everybody. It's Linda Laurel. Welcome to Our Voices Matter podcast. It isn't every day that I get to bring you a conversation with two NFL Hall of Famers. I'm talking about James Lofton and Warren Moon. I feel very fortunate that I know both of these gentlemen, and I reached out to them because I thought, you know, with all that's going on in the country, with racial unrest and and COVID and everything that those two things combined are having an impact on, including professional sports, I thought, man, it would be really fun to have a conversation with them and get their perspective about all of this. And then I remembered that they actually grew up together. They have been friends since they were little boys back in the Pop Warner days. So I reached out and I said, are you guys willing to have this conversation together? And they said, absolutely. Bring it on. Let's do it. So here it is. James Lofton and Warren Moon. I can't remember the last time I was this excited about doing an interview with two of my favorite people on the planet and feel so blessed to know both of you, Warren Moon and James Lofton, NFL Hall of Famers, both of you, and longtime friends dating all the way back to, did you say Pop Warner days, Warren? Pop Warner days. (laughs) We go all the way back to the Baldwin Hills Trojans. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah do it's tell been a while. <laughs> and you know there's something that, that i want to say and i know we'll get into it a little bit more as we go along but when we left college in 1978 warren went to canada to play in the cfl and at that time most of the players who went to the cfl were not quote good enough to play in the nfl well i had known warren for 10 years prior to that uh, played against him in high school, knew that he was an all-star in high school, played against him while I was at Stanford. He was at Washington. He led Washington to the Rose Bowl. And he went there, and he changed the face of the CFL because now all of a sudden guys would go to the CFL and they disappear. The only thing you had to do once Warren went to the CFL was to check and see who won the Grey Cup, which was like their Super Bowl. And the Edmonton Eskimos were in it almost every year, and Warren was winning it, most valuable player. So when he went there, it validated everything that I knew about being a black high school quarterback that said that we had to change positions. You didn't have to change positions. And Warren proved that in the CFL and then doubled, doubled down on it once he got to the NFL. Did he pay you to say all that, Warren? I don't think he's gotten it yet, but it'll be there in the next day or so. (laughs) The check is in the mail. Bam. Oh, my goodness. But, James, you you are so right because before that, black quarterbacks did not exist in the NFL. In, in, in professional sports. Warren, what was that like for you going through that whole process that James just uh, described? Well, you know, James didn't mention that he was a, a very uh, acclaimed high school quarterback as well in, in the Los Angeles area. And uh, he went to Stanford on a track and football scholarship, but they changed his position where I was able to go to the University of Washington 
and still remain a quarterback. So uh, James ended up moving to wide receiver, and the rest is history there. He was, you know, All-American. He, he's a first-round draft pick. Uh, had a great NFL career. Makes it to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. All of those different things. But James was an accomplished quarterback back during uh, high school days. And who knows if things would have been a little bit different. He probably would have been a quarterback if he had went to another school. So uh, we don't know what we would have uh, saw out of James Lofton if he would have been able to get behind center and throw the football. But he was such a great athlete. He could pretty much do anything he wanted to do. James, what was your preferred position? I mean, you ended up being a a, a wide receiver. Um, That's your claim to fame. But what was your preferred position? Right. It it is a little crazy because um, James Shaq Harris, who played at Grambling before Doug Williams, had a birthday the other day. And when he had that birthday on the Internet, they had him in his number 12 jersey. Well, I wore number 12 while I was in high school. And, and I don't know if my high school coach gave it to me because James Shaq Harris wore it, but I look back on it and I said, hey, that, that's kind of neat that he and I had the same jersey numbers, and he was a quarterback in the Los Angeles area at that time for the L.A. Rams that both Warren and I probably snuck into the Coliseum to watch. Many times. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. There was, a, there, was so, a hole, there was a hole in the gate at gate number 28, James. I used to go to that hole right there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So when you guys were growing up, did you have doubts that you would make it to the NFL? I mean, did you always believe that it was going to happen? And if the doubts ever came, how did you overcome them? You know, I don't, I don't know about doubts. I don't know if I ever – thought about going to the NFL. The first time that I thought about being an athlete was in 1968. The Mexico City Olympics were on television, and because they were essentially in the same time zone as everything that was happening on the West Coast, it was the first time that I saw a major sporting event day after day after day, and we had the demonstrations by Tommy Smith and John Carlos Yep. And all of a sudden, I found out that they had gone to San Jose State. And I said, well, where is San Jose State? That's where I want to go to school. And I remember going to school. I was at um, Henry Clay Junior High School. And we would have the uh, national anthem played before school started. And we were out on the play yard. And I remember putting up the black uh, power fist in the air as the, as the national anthem was being played. And it was the first time I said, I want to be an athlete, and this is the type of athlete that I want to be. But to be 12 years old and to be thinking about being a professional athlete, that was so far out of the realm of, of what you even dreamed about that mm-hmm. I, I don't know if Warren did, but, but I certainly didn't at that time. Did you, Warren? I, uh, I probably dreamed more about it than anything else. You know, my mother got me involved in all different sports because I grew up without a dad. My dad passed away when I was seven, and I had six sisters, so she wanted to get me out of the house around other boys, around other men, and mentors, uh, just to have kind of father figures around. So I played basketball, baseball, football, and a lot of times I was by myself, you know, in the evenings, because uh, if I didn't have any friends around, it was just all girls in the house. So I'd be outside playing by myself, and I would be the announcer. I'd be Chicken if I was playing basketball. I was Ben Scully if I was playing baseball. I was Dick Inberg if I was playing football. And I would just act out whatever was going on on that particular play, whether it was uh, 
you're running a sweep uh, on a football play or playing basketball and hitting the winning shot, whatever it was. So a lot of mine were dreams growing up, but they became more of goals. Probably once I got uh, to my senior year of high school and, and hoping that I could get into college, and then who knows what, what would happen from there. But, yeah, as a kid, you just dreamed about those things, especially playing quarterback. Quarterback was something I had to dream more about because there wasn't a whole lot of guys that looked like me playing quarterback at the NFL level. And so I knew it was going to be a difficult journey. Yeah. So, James, I want to pick up on what you were saying about that iconic photo of the, the, the two athletes in, the, uh, in the, um, the, the Olympics in Mexico holding up the black the, the, the fist, the black power sign, and what that meant. And let's fast forward to a few years ago when Colin Kaepernick took a knee. When Colin did that, what was your thought? What was going through your mind? And how did you respond and connect the dots, if you can, to 1968? Yeah, I remember Colin uh, was first noticed on the sideline um, during the national anthem, um, kind of back away from it because he wasn't in uniform. He had been a little bit injured at the time of his preseason game, and he had taken a knee. And the next week, the San Francisco 49ers were going to play the San Diego Chargers in a preseason game. And I remember thinking, he's going to play this week. I just hope he plays well because what he has done is he stepped out of his comfort zone and he is about to take on something that we don't know what's going to happen with. Uh, I understood what he was trying to say about the police brutality about the uh, social injustice that he was talking about, but he had only gotten to the tip of the iceberg with it. And to be the first to carry that message forward, when Tommy Smith and John Carlos did it, Dr. Harry Edwards had been alongside of them. He had been a uh, student with them, had been on the track team with them. But now he was kind of the person who was out front speaking for them, helping them to fashion it. And with Colin, he stepped out on his own. I don't know if he had the support behind him when he first started, but he certainly did as he got it going because you even go to the uh, first game of the regular season. And uh, we had a game in London with CBS and Jacksonville was playing. And Shad Khan, the owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars, went out there with his entire team and they took a knee. And here was an owner, a Brown owner, taking a knee with his team. So it was, it was a big first step. It was in defiance of uh, what the president said at the time. And it was just such a bold move. I knew that um, Colin Kaepernick was doing something that was going to change the face of the way that players were heard. And, you know, the Internet has done that. You know, you don't have to be interviewed anymore to be heard. And so mm -hmm. players have taken that upon themselves, and it, it's been something that's been um, impressive to watch. And I, I go back to 1968, and there's a big time lag in between because 68 was kind of at the end of the civil rights movement when not enough civil rights were moving. And these young men got out there, and, and they stood on the victory stand, and they were quickly escorted out of the Olympic Village, sent back to uh, San Jose, and just dumped upon uh, couldn't right. find jobs, couldn't right. feed their families, uh, got a, a bunch of hate mail. 
But now you go to the San Jose State campus and there are statues up. Hmm. Well, and Colin certainly paid a price yes. as well. Um, so Warren, what are, what are your thoughts about Colin taking the knee and, and, and what has transpired since then? Well, just like James talked about, it was a, a very courageous thing for him to do. The problem was I felt the messaging was, was very mixed at the time when he did it. Uh, I don't think there was enough clarification on the reason why he was doing it. Um, I know he had said some things prior to that about the flag and that the, and somehow the flag got brought into it. He said, I'm not going to stand up for a flag that doesn't have justice for all. So that all of a sudden brought the flag into the conversation and everybody just kind of ran with that, that he was, that he was uh, protesting against the flag and against the star spangled banner, which wasn't the reason why he was uh, protesting. And I, I don't think he ever really made it clear why he was protesting as it went along, that message started to come out, but it was too late. It was already ingrained in other people's minds that it was about mm -hmm. the flag. And then the president came out and, and said what he said about the flag as well. And that made it even more ingrained in people's heads. So it's unfortunate that the, the messaging about what he was trying to do in the beginning uh, got so skewed. But I think everybody understands now after what happened with George Floyd and uh, the way people saw such a graphic uh, kind of I don't murder. know what you want to call it. Yeah, yeah murder, it was murder. It was murder. Like yeah. an execution as, as you mm -hmm. watched it. It was like mm -hmm. just slow and so graphic that I think it really brought the point home about what Colin had been talking about with the police brutality and everything. And then all of a sudden, uh, the racial injustice. So it's it's great that it's all come out and so clear now. It's, it's bad that it had to happen under those type of circumstances. But again, what he did was very courageous at the time, but the message was definitely not uh, not clear to everyone in the United States at that time. And that's mm -hmm. why it became such a controversial subject. Linda, I've always wondered if a quarterback who was white in the league had taken a knee when they had the um, tragedy at Sandy Hook in the elementary school, someone when the shooter went in and killed all the young kids if a white quarterback had taken a knee after that tragedy and said, I'm taking a knee because I'm against gun violence and against what happened at Sandy Hook, what would have been the response then? Hmm. Wow. Well, I think we all know the answer to that question. It'd be interesting. Yeah. It yeah. It wouldn't be as volatile as this. Mm -hmm. Definitely not. Uh, James, I'm curious, have you spoken to Colin at all recently about any of this? I have not had the opportunity to. Um, he, you know, when you step out and you are um, a champion for civil rights, um, people are going to come after you. You know, we just mm -hmm. had the uh, death of John Lewis. And when you, you go back and you look at when they tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge and he had on that overcoat. And it, it's so easy to find him in those photos and that police officer has the bayonet and or the baton and is just wailing away on him um there's there's no mistaking that it's him and there's no mistaking what he went through and it's the same way with colin kaepernick there's no mistaking that it's colin kaepernick there's no mistaking what he's gone through what he sacrificed in terms of his career to take a knee and to be heard mm. yeah so, Warren, how do you think this is going to um, affect 
not only the NFL, but all of professional sports going forward in terms of players taking a stand about racial injustice and making that, utilizing basically their, their celebrity and their platform in order to try to affect change. How do you see this, this playing out? Well, I see it having a tremendous effect already. Uh, just from the, from the start of everything, um, all the different sports have all gotten together and, and are trying to figure out ways they can do more to, to bring out the messaging, whether it's putting different uh, messages on their jerseys, whether it's uh, the type of ads that come out, uh, all types of different ways of getting those messages out. And because of social media, as James talked about, these, these players are now able to get their message out organically right from, from whatever they have on their mind. And they don't have to worry about going through an interview process. They don't have to worry about doing an interview with a newspaper where it's edited. They don't have to worry about doing an interview on television where it's edited. Their words go right out to the public and to the people that are following them. So social media has been a tremendous uh, vehicle for them to get the word out on, on a, a subject like this. And I think that's why you see so many more players want to get more involved because they do know that what they have to say gets right out there to the people that they want to say it to. And this is a much more active um, society because these young kids have so much more information right in their hands as they hold their telephone every day. They're seeing what's going on on the Internet every day. It's all there, and it just depends on how much of it they want to read, on, on what they want to read and what they want to believe. So they're so much more uh, socially active than, than we ever were because we didn't have all this information unless we read the newspaper or watched the news. They have mm -hmm. it right in their hands 24-7, and we know how much time they spend on their telephones every day. So they're much more aware of everything that's going on in the society, and I'm glad they're using their voices to try and make some change because it's going to take young people and it's going to take you know, white people in order to get involved with this. And we see a lot of white people being involved in what, what is really a black movement with Black Lives Matter. One of the things that that also needs to to change within the sports world, you know, so many of the of the players are, are black in the in the NFL, in the NBA and, you know, in other sports, um, but not in ownership. So when we talk about the economics of Black America, and you know, we just had the the um, uh, 99th anniversary of the Tulsa massacre and all the Black wealth that was wiped out literally, you know, almost a hundred years ago. How different might Black economic wealth be different had that not happened? So we have I don't know how many Black owners we have partial or full owners in any of professional sports, but I know it's a lot less than there are black players. So how does this movement um, move black people into ownership and decision-making and wealth building within professional sports? James, you want to tackle that first part? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was that, a hard one. <laughs> and, it, and it does go back to uh, 1619 when the first slave ships arrived because we, we came over, and we, we helped build this country, but we weren't given a stake in the equity. Uh, you go to the uh, Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, and then the final uh, 1865, Juneteenth, when the slaves in Texas were finally told that they were set free. But then you go with, with the Jim Crow laws. 
and different things like that. So, you know, you talk about running a race and you're going to run a lap around the track, but the other people are a half a lap in front of you. Those are hurdles that, that can be overcome. And you look at uh, something as simple as uh, the three-on-three uh, basketball league that they had and some of the young rap stars that were involved in it. And I think all three of us are of the age where when rap music started, we were just old enough where later on we were going, well, we hope our kids don't listen to too much of that. <laughs> but then we realized that out of that, these young people who were rappers became entertainers, became movie moguls, became recording moguls. And yeah, they are moving into sports a little bit. Are the, are the dollar figures associated with buying a team or investing in a team high? Yes. But also, I think it's good business if you are um, a, a white person of privilege who has had a chance to have that generational wealth to have some African-American um, uh, spokespeople along with you or, or equity in, in what you're doing because it's mm-hmm. just good business right now. Have either of you ever um, made any attempts to become owners in any professional sports? Yeah, I've talked to some different ownership groups over the years, but uh, there were groups that I didn't think, uh, uh, as far as the due diligence I did on them, were, were going to probably be accepted by the NFL just based off of whatever their their financial status was, or maybe something in their background or something like that. So, I've been I've been approached by different people over the years, no question about it. Um, I think it's just a matter of time because we have a lot of African Americans that are getting to that stage where they have that type of wealth. And one of the things the NFL has done, they, they want to make sure that they don't have a bunch of people that are, are, are uh, investors in a team. They want to have a majority owner. And when, to be a majority owner in the National Football League, where these franchises now are going anywhere from 2 to $4 billion, you've got to have some pretty, pretty big pockets in order to be that majority owner to do that part of it on your own and then bring in investors maybe for, for the rest of it. But mm-hmm. that's one of the ways they can keep that kind of good old boys uh, kind of grouped together by making sure that they make it so difficult for whatever, whatever person comes in, they have to have that type of wealth that they're looking for to be a part of that group. So I think you're starting to see people like Jay-Z and people like that getting involved in sports. And it's just a matter of time before we see an ownership group put together uh, this African-Americans. And I think because of the climate that's going on right now with more inclusion uh, with minorities, I think you're going to see them actually looking for some minority groups to, to get involved in, in the NFL or NBA or, or in Major League Baseball to get more minority ownership going because it'll just fit in with what everything is going on right now. And James, do you have any, any ownership aspirations? Uh, I, I do not. Um, you know, I think it is an exclusive club when you look at the players who are playing today. And uh, if they put together a 10, 12-year career, they're going to make upwards of $200, $250 million. So they have made that type of capital uh, while they're playing, and hopefully they can invest it well and, and grow that even more. You look at uh, Michael Jordan and what he's been able to do, or LeBron James and their sports, where they've been able to take their brand, which is the shoe companies, and really carve off a piece of that and have the Michael Jordan brand, the, Le- the LeBron James brand. 
So that's where you, you really are able to earn more money off of your endorsement capital. And so you've seen a lot of that. And, and I think what happens is, you know, you talk, Linda, about the leagues being black. Well, coaching staffs are turning in that direction. But as Warren knows, there, there are some positions where it doesn't seem like we're represented in the coaching staff ranks, uh, you know, quarterback coach, offensive line coach, and offensive coordinator. You know, you can sure. coach in the league for a while. I got to be a wide receiver coach. When I was on that same team, our running back coach was a, a black man. But very seldom do they get to make the jump to quarterback coach or offensive coordinator, which really leads them into being head coaches. So that's the, the pathway toward being the head coach. And that's why it's more difficult to get in there. And they've not been giving opportunities there. Is that what you're saying? It, it certainly is. And, and, you know, it's funny when you look at the NBA and you can take a retired basketball player and two or three years later, he can be a head coach, even if he's just been sitting in the broadcast booth. The NFL seems like it gives you more hurdles to jump over if you're African-American and you're a former player to get to that head coaching level. Yeah, and you've, yeah. Got like, you've got like Byron Leftwich, who is the offensive coordinator with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They had one of the top offenses in the league last year, and there's no question he should have been up for a head coaching job somewhere mm -hmm. with all the jobs that were available. And also the Kansas City Chiefs have an African-American uh, yeah. offensive coordinator as well. And he interviewed for some jobs, but didn't get any of those jobs that were available. So there are guys that are qualified, but they're just not seeming to get those opportunities. And as sure. we go back to uh, the, the investment of, of ownership, uh, you look at Alex Rodriguez right now, a former baseball player. He's put together a uh, ownership group that he's trying to purchase the New York Mets. So hopefully that will come to fruition. But I know he's being, uh, he's being bidded against by some other big-time billionaire, so I don't know if he's going to win that bid or not. But it would be great to see him get that, that franchise, especially being a former baseball player. It would. That would be great. So, James, you mentioned um, the jump to, to broadcasting, and that's something that both you and Warren have, have done. So I'm interested to know what that was like for you, if that was a difficult um, opportunity to to pursue were you able to move into broadcasting in the way that that you expected and hoped to do i don't know if it was the way that i expected it to go but what what i've told uh young people and years ago when i first got into the business is the the hard part isn't doing the work the hard part is getting hired um because the the work is something that you really enjoy, that if you uh, take to it, you, you research it, you'll do well. I remember watching Warren when he branched out and he was doing sideline reporting with the NBA. And I thought, man, look, look at what Warren is doing. And I was so excited for him. Uh, years later, I was working at CNN and I was watching everybody else at ESPN and at CBS and NBC. And I was thinking, I want one of those jobs. And I was over at the Georgia Dome. I saw a former teammate of mine, and he motioned for me to come over. He said, man, how did you get that job at CNN? <laughs> and, and you forget that once you're on TV, people notice you, and they think the world of television is this wonderful world. And it is great, but it, it is a very temporary world. And, and you have to be able to take the 
criticism that's out there, especially now on the internet. Don't go and Google your name or, or oh, Google know. results and go to awful <laughs> announcement or whatever, because they will just take you apart. But yeah. I, I think when you get into this business, you, you can climb up a little bit. Uh, every once in a while, I look at somebody like Charles Davis, who's a young broadcaster, who's gone from Fox to now CBS. And I remember doing preseason games with the Carolina Panthers, and he was our sideline reporter. So it's, it's a business that, yes, opportunities are out there. And, and for the most part, for the most part, you believe it's fair, as fair as it can be because it's a subjective business. Nobody, there's no scale that says, oh, he's better than this guy, this guy's better than that guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Booker McFarlane, who was on Monday Night Football, people just criticized him like crazy. And I go back and I listen to some of those games now, and I go, doing a good job. He's competent. He's opinionated. He's everything that you want, but maybe because of the color of his skin, people criticize him a little more than what he should be criticized. James, remind our audience, what was your trajectory from CNN to CBS, where you are now? So I went to CNN in um, 1994. We had a show called NFL Preview. And at the time, pregame shows were half an hour to an hour. They weren't the five-hour marathons that they are now. (laughs) And so I did that. I did some work with the Carolina Panthers or did their preseason games. Um, I moved over to NBC in 1997 to do football games for them. I worked with Mike Breen, who many people know he's the lead NBA announcer now. So Mike and I started out as a team. Well, NBC lost football. And when they lost football, I had to make a decision. And, you know, you're sitting there and you're going, okay, so what do I do next? And I had an offer to go to ESPN and do college football and to do arena football. Or I thought I could go back to CNN and pick up some other things like Fox Sports and Fox Sports Net. And I chose to go back to CNN, uh, was there for a while, did some college football with Fox Sports and Fox Sports Net. But then I decided I wanted to coach. And so I went into coaching in 2002, did that for seven seasons, and then came back to broadcasting, some radio broadcasting, and ended up back on television three years ago. So um, Dave Sims, who was my broadcast partner, on Sunday Night Football, and Warren knows him because he does the Seattle Mariners, we were a black pair doing uh, national games, even though we were on radio. And Dave joked with me when I got hired by CBS, he said, you just got in the Guinness Book of World Records. I go, what do you mean? He said, you're the oldest black person that anybody's ever hired. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that, right? <laughs> That's hilarious. That's hilarious. So, Warren, uh, let's let's talk about your your broadcast career and 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 with the trajectory and and what what you were looking to do and were expecting when you got into that part of the of the uh, the business. Yeah, when I retired after 23 years of professional football, I thought I wanted to take some time off, but I, I found myself really bored within the first four months of. Uh, of that first off season that I was I didn't have to work out. I didn't have to train. I didn't have to go to any mini camps or, or OTAs or anything like that. So next thing you know, the season's coming upon me and I got a call from, uh, from uh, Westwood one that they wanted me to do some sideline work for them if I was interested. So I said, yeah, why not? I'm, I'm kind of bored with, uh, with my life right now because I, I was rested, I was healed. And, uh, 
you know, my kids were going to school. They didn't really need me around. They weren't even used to having me around because I was never around much when I was playing. So I, I took that on and, and uh, I really loved doing that. And then that kind of, uh, you know, just jumped to the next stage where you go into the booth. And I started doing games for Westwood One on Monday Night Football. And, and I worked with Dave Sims as well, uh, doing Monday Night Games with, with Dave. And then the Seattle Seahawks called me. And uh, they wanted me to be their uh, their radio voice, one of their radio voices for their games uh, throughout the year. Do the do the te television in the preseason, do the radio during this regular season, and then Fox uh, called me about doing the uh, the Pac-10, uh, do, doing Pac-10 games for college football. So I was doing all of that at the same time, and and I loved it because I could stay mainly on the West Coast and not have to worry about traveling all over the country unless I was going with the Seahawks maybe, you know, eight, ten games out of the season. So it was a pretty good setup for me. And I was with the Seahawks for 15 years, and I did college football for, I think, an, about seven years. And I, it was just too much doing the both, so I dropped the college football because I loved uh, doing NFL football much better. It was it was much easier to follow. You didn't have to worry about what the fourth team tied in was, was <laughs> doing and, and where he was from and all that type of stuff. Like play and you might have to know something about it. So the NFL was just easier. And then the fact that I was with one football team that I got to know inside and out, I got to mentor some of their young guys as well as do their games. And they were very good. So they were always in the playoffs. Uh, you know, I was able to do three Super Bowls with them as a broadcaster. I got a Super Bowl ring out of that. So it was a very good experience for me. But uh, the reason you do it is because you enjoy the game. I just love the game of football. And uh, I also love talking about it since I can't play it anymore physically. And that, that's the reason why, you know, I chose to do that because I felt like I had enough knowledge to bring to the game about the strategy of the game or stories that I could tell about, you know, when I played. And uh, I wasn't out there to be critical. I was out there just to kind of point out uh, what might have what might go right or what might go wrong or why that play didn't happen. Not that any guy out there drops a pass, wants to drop a pass. You want to, you, you want to point out why he might have dropped that pass. So mm -hmm. I, I was just a little bit different than some of the other guys out there that want to criticize every time a guy does something wrong. But you know that because you played the game, you know you're not out there to do things wrong. You're out there trying your butt off, but things don't always happen. And our job is to point out why they might have happened. You know, so many companies are stepping up to help their communities through this challenging time. And here in Texas, one of those companies is HEB. The grocery giant has shown time and again that it knows how to handle a crisis, which is why it was ready to jump into action when the scope of the COVID-19 pandemic became apparent. The company's efforts and expertise were highlighted in a recent Texas Monthly article, quoting here, San Antonio-based HEB has been a steady presence amid the crisis. The company began limiting the amounts of certain products customers were able to purchase in early March, extended its sick leave policy, and implemented social distancing measures quickly, limited its hours to keep up with the needs of its stockers, added a coronavirus hotline for employees in need of assistance or information, and gave employees a temporary increase in mid-March. I've shopped at HEB from the moment they came to Houston almost 20 years ago. I'm proud to have them as a sponsor of this podcast. Thank you, HEB. So how are both of you spending your time now during these COVID days? Let's let's move into the pandemic a little bit and how that's 
affecting you, your families, your work. Um, what have these last few months been like, James? When, when it first started, and, and maybe a little bit after we kind of got the news at the end of January, uh, my wife and I were on a cruise. We'd been on a cruise for two weeks. And about the last four days of the cruise is when it, it really started to hit. And when I say it started to hit, the, the stock market started to sink. And so all of a sudden, you, you notice that, and you go, well, what's wrong? And you, you hear about the rest of the world and what's going on in Europe, what was going on in specifically Italy, what was going on in China. And so it was starting to seep in. And as we were on that cruise, um, we were denied entry into a port. And so now we're going, we start to look around at all the people from all around the world who are on this cruise ship with us. And we're down in the Caribbean and we're going to end up getting off the ship in Miami. So once we do that and we come back home, all of a sudden we are now go to the grocery store, you, you know, you pick up, you stock up on groceries, you, you hear the rumors that there's no toilet paper, that there are no paper towels, that there's no bottled water. And you find out that that's all true and that people are panic buying. And uh, the two of us, my wife and I went to the grocery store and we came out with two baskets of groceries to the point where we didn't have enough refrigeration space <laughs> for all the things that we bought. We, we kind of went overboard a little bit. but Yeah, we all did in the beginning. Yeah. And, but, you know, we have gotten to the point now where we've, we've worn masks. We have only taken one airline trip. We went uh, from San Diego to Portland, Oregon for the uh, fifth, for the seventh birthday of our oldest grandson. Uh, they came here a couple of weeks ago, months after we had gone up to visit them. So we've, we've had little things like that, but the social interaction with a lot of people, mm -hmm. you don't go to indoor restaurants here in California. Our governor, Gavin Newsom, uh, I think has done a good job in updating people every day, being honest with them. And um, you, you're, you're concerned, you're worried, but I don't think we're scared. Right? Mm -hmm. I think we do take precautions. Uh, I ride my bike almost every day, and I even wear my mask when I'm riding my bike. And, and some people say you don't have to do it when you're exercising because you're away from people. But I do it as a sign of, I'm going to do this even when out of an abundance of caution. Yeah. Kind of sending yeah. a message to other people who are out walking and doing things like that, that I'm protecting you as much as I'm trying to protect myself. Exactly. That's you know, I can't believe we're still even having the conversation about masks right now. It's so frustrating. Um, so Warren, you're, you're in LA today visiting your mom, but you live in the Seattle area. Um, so how, how are you and your, your family dealing with, with COVID? You know, it's the same thing for me. Um, I haven't traveled very much and a lot of my work that I was doing prior to the, to the uh, pandemic was traveling on airplanes, doing different appearances, different places, whatever it might've been speaking, things like that. But that kind of all came to a halt when, uh, when the pandemic hit and you just couldn't go anywhere. So uh, mm -hmm. A lot of it had to be kind of, you know, redesigned as far as how you do things. So Zoom, like what we're doing right now, has become really big as far as being able to, to speak to groups and things like that. Um, the only time I have traveled is I've gone down to Houston to see my kids and my grandkids who live down there and also here to see my mom. Otherwise, haven't traveled hardly at all. And, and I found out that traveling isn't that bad uh, the way they have it now, uh, especially on the airline that I travel on, Alaska. They don't, they don't 
book any middle seats in coach. They don't book any one only mm-hmm. one seat in first class. So you don't have anybody next to you if you're in first class, unless you're traveling with your wife or a companion or something like that. Mm-hmm. Planes mm-hmm. are really clean. They have these filtration systems that are kind of like being in a hospital. They said they're about equivalent to that. So I feel pretty safe on an airplane. Everybody has a mask on and all that. There's no food being served or anything. <clears throat> so yeah. it's been a pretty good experience when I did travel, but, uh, I've uh, the main thing is trying to keep my 13 year old son trying to keep him busy through the whole uh, pandemic. Uh, he was had to do a lot yeah. of his schooling on the internet, something that was different for him. All of his, uh, he was on a basketball team that got canceled. Uh, he was going to do flag football that got canceled. His probably yeah. his football season coming up and pop Warner is going to probably be canceled. So just trying it's to hard. It's just hard. Busy. So he's been wearing my arm out right now. And it's, <laughs> at 63 year old, I probably get a 40 or 50 passes into him every time we go out and throw. Uh, really? So he's, he's keeping me in shape as well as I'm keeping him active, but trying to keep him off the video games as much as I possibly can. But. Well, you know, you, you talk about all the cancellations and of course, you know, professional sports, we're all kind of waiting with bated breath to see what this is going to look like. So I have a few questions for you guys around that. First of all, if, if you were active players right now, would you be comfortable going back playing under the current um, guidelines that have been announced? Well, I, I think one of the things that you become a victim of when you're an active player is that you are young and that you feel like you're indestructible. Um, but I have heard a lot of the players who understand that where they might be able to weather uh, getting the coronavirus, that they don't want to take it to their family members. And I think that is right. the, the biggest thing for them because they feel like they're instructive, indestructible. Um, you know, I know that that's the way you feel when you're 25, 26, 27 years of age. Uh, so I think I would be in that same camp right now. Um, but I, I look at the players and, and for me, like Warren said, I'm going to have to travel because I'm going to be broadcasting games in empty stadiums, I think, for the most part. Although I do think that there are going to be some locations where they're going to try and social distance and 20% capacity or whatever, just to have some faces in those stands. So that's going to be interesting getting in to getting out. When do I get tested? Should I get tested every Tuesday and have my results by maybe Thursday so that I know that if I get on a plane on Friday or Saturday, that I'm not getting on a plane carrying the virus with me. So you, you mentioned testing and the, the, the latest that I've heard is that they're going to be testing players every day for yeah. two weeks Right. And then there's this whole protocol after that and, and tier one and tier two, tier one being players and, you know, the personnel of the team and those who have to interact directly with them. And then tier two is those who, you know, may have to have some access but are not there all the time. Um, so, Warren, what do, you, what do you think about the, the things that are in place to try to keep players and staff and everybody safe? Would you feel comfortable playing? Yeah, I'm sure that the. Uh... NFL Players Association and the medical people that they're uh, talking to are, are helping them as far as they go through these these negotiations. And I think they have the negotiations down to a point where they feel comfortable and that they would go back to work within the facility and the way the whole uh, protocol is going to be uh, structured. The biggest problem to me is not going to be once they're inside their facility. I think they're going to make sure everything is done right that way as far as keeping distancing and that and 
the way they're being tested every day. It's going to be when those young guys leave that facility at the end of the day at five o'clock. What do they do when they go when when they go home? What do they do? Who are they going to be interacting with uh, when they're out at night? Are they going to be going to dinner at night? Are they going to be hanging out with their friends at night? And then the next day they're going to have to come back and test again. Those are the, those are the things that I'm more concerned about. The responsibility that the players are going to have to put on themselves. Uh, to make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing when they're away from the facility. Because I have no doubt that the facility is going to be taken care of to make it as safe an environment as they possibly can. But it's going to be a lot of responsibility put on a lot of those young guys because the older guys are going to have families. They're going to have to worry about taking that home to their wives and their kids. But there's a lot of young single guys out there. What's going to happen with those guys? And those are the ones that can bring it back in there and spread it to the rest of the team. So there's a lot of responsibility there. You bring up a really good point. And so, you know, given that and, and some of the other concerns, do you think it's realistic to think that there will be a season? I think there, think there will be? be a season, but I think there will be guys that are going to test positive. And, and how they respond to that, are they just pull those guys out and put them into quarantine? Or are they going to have to shut everything down, depending on how many guys actually test positive? That's going to be the big question once they are addressed with that. But I'm hoping it doesn't come to that. I saw the other day that they tested 346 basketball players and none of them tested positive. But they're, they're practicing within a bubble right now. It's a little bit different than what the yeah. NFL is doing. There's going to be a lot more freedom for players to come and go. And that's where you're probably going to start to see some of those uh, positive tests. What do you think, James? Will there be a season? Uh, I, I do think that the season will start on time. Um, and the reason being is because you have wiped out the preseason. So now you have a semi-controlled environment for the players to come in and practice and work out. But like Warren said, it's, it's in the off hours. And, it, and it's not anything that uh, players will do willingly. But, you know, you, you go out, you're, you have to go to the grocery store to pick up some groceries. You have to go – get gas in your car. You have to do all the things that you do on a normal basis. So there are contaminants out there and, and some of these uh, hotly contested areas around the country are where NFL teams are. You know, you right. look at Miami, you look at Houston, those are areas, Jacksonville, Florida, you, you look at areas where, and in Los Angeles. So it, it invariably will happen. Uh, but how do you go about, you know, you get an offensive lineman, and he'd been sitting in the offensive line room with 10 other guys. You know, what happens? Because now you know that he was around those guys, so you really have to make sure that you don't lose five offensive line. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be interesting to, to see how this plays out. So before I let you guys go, we have to talk about that game in 1992. Do we really? Yeah, I'm sorry, Warren. <laughs> <laughs> we really do, because just, I can't believe that I've got the two of you to talk about this. I just saw James's head grow a little it's bit. It's like, <laughs> right? Yeah, James's head is getting big, and yours is exploding because you just don't want to go there. Go ahead, James. Warren won't believe how I feel about that game, because we had played the Houston Oilers the week before the last regular season game in Houston. They had beaten us. And so now they come up to um, Buffalo to play us in the playoffs. And, you know, they're, they're up 35 to seven during the course of the ball game. And, and I remember standing on my sideline thinking, okay, one, two, 
three days and I should be able to get all packed up and get back to Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> no, you weren't. <laughs> I remember dancing across the, the field and two years prior, we had played the uh, LA Raiders in the, in the AFC championship game and we had beaten them. And Marcus Allen, who had been my teammate with the Raiders, came across and said, good luck, go get them in the Super Bowl. And I remember thinking, when this game is over, I'm going to go to Warren and tell them good luck for the rest of the playoffs. Well, obviously, that didn't happen. So for me, I was looking at that game and just that one little moment, thinking beyond that game, thinking – I got a bond on the other side and Warren and somebody who I'm invested in to go win a Super Bowl, to be the second African-American quarterback to star in the Super Bowl. But he has to settle for being the first one to be in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Warren, I, I want to hear your perspective on that game. And then I'm going to tell you the fan perspective, My the perspective. Houston Oiler fan perspective okay so go <laughs> my perspective is i would have never agreed to go on your show if i knew i had to answer this question i probably should have oh, come on. in advance i don't want to talk about this <laughs> it was very painful to me even today and that was 30 years ago something like that but i never thought we were going to lose a game but I, as they were making their uh their little comeback i thought why do we have to make things so difficult because we had some other games throughout the year that, that we had gotten big leads, but teams slowly crept back into the game, but, and we made it a little bit more uh, a little bit more interesting than it should have been. And, I'm, and I just kept saying that on the sideline. Why are we making this so difficult, again, to win this football game? Why don't we just go ahead and, and put it away? And we just, we just didn't do it. And I've never seen the momentum in a football game change the way it did in that mm -hmm. game. Um, we weren't doing the same things defensively as far as being aggressive to the way we got, the, we got the lead. Offensively, we, we got to be a little bit more passive as well, and, and I, I take some responsibility for that. And then we just did some things that were just, you know, very stupid, whether it was letting them kick an onside kick and, and recover it, um, whether it was dropping an interception or letting an interception go through your hands right into one of their receiver's hands or not – not handling the snap on a, on a uh, field goal attempt that probably would have put the game away for us late in the third, I mean, early in the fourth quarter, just stuff like that, that, that we should have won that game so many different ways and we didn't. And we have nobody to, uh, nobody to blame but ourselves. So that was one of those games where I thought we should have won and I thought our team was good enough to maybe advance all the way to the Super Bowl. Well, well I have to you're sitting on the couch. How did, how did you see it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, let me wait. Let, let me let me just set the scene. The man, African American okay? woman in Houston, Texas. You talk about an angry black woman, okay? <laughs> I was the angry black woman that day. My husband will attest to it. So here's the thing, Warren. Remember, during this time, we were neighbors here in Houston. We lived right. in the same neighborhood. Our families were very close at that time. So Lou and I, my husband, were already like we had our tickets we're like we are going to the super bowl we know warren we are so going to the super bowl right so this game is happening and we are actually on vacation in california visiting my mother in palm springs in palm desert and so we watched the the game it's you know going our way halftime it's like okay i don't even need to well it's over i'm just going to go sit out on the patio and lou goes linda the game is not over. You know how the Oilers are. 
<laughs> just you know how you know what can happen. I said, I, "Honey, it's over. It is so over." So I'm on the patio, and I hear him screaming, and then I kind of tiptoe back in, and I see the score creeping up and creeping up, and then I'm just like, "Oh my god!" And I literally was went back to the patio, hands in head, and saying to my husband, "Do not talk to me," <laughs> because he kept telling me. He said, "Linda." It's not over till it's over. I was crushed. I mean, I could have been more, I, can, I was more crushed than you, Warren, I, although I'm not really. But as a fan, I wanted it so much for our team, and I really wanted it for you. Really wanted it for if you. If you had been in town that night, you probably would have come over to my house and egged it for you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would not have done that. I would have given you a big hug. Uh, I would have given you a big hug and we would have cried together because that was just, but then knowing also my buddy James, my Stanford buddy James, who had won the game, I was happy for him, of course, but oh my goodness. About that much. About that much. <laughs> yeah, about, about that much, about that much. But the bottom line is, Warren, you ended up getting your Super Bowl ring as a broadcaster, as you just explained a few minutes ago. Yeah, I did. As a Seattle Seahawk in uh, 2013, we beat the uh, Denver Broncos in the Super Bowl, kind of annihilated a team that had beaten every, uh, every offensive record in the, in the game that particular year with Peyton Manning throwing 55 touchdown passes. And I don't, they were, I don't know how many points a game they were averaging, over 35 points a game. So, our defense just came to play and really shut them down that day, and we got a Super Bowl ring out of it. So something wow. I always, uh, always cherish. I'll have that thing on my finger. I don't wear it very, very much, if at all, but I do have one. Oh well, I'm I'm glad that you have one, and um, I mean, it's just <laughs> I, I got to ask one more question. Do you guys remember what you said to each other at the end of that that Buffalo Oilers game? Do you, do you recall? James, did I even see you? I don't even. Remember. I didn't. I didn't see him at the end of the game. I don't think I talked to anybody. Pandemonium. <laughs> I think I just walked coming off our bench, straight to the tunnel to get out of that place. I mean, yeah, it's like where can, where can I go and hide? Right? Where can yeah, I go and hide? And those fans up there are amazing. We when we left the stadium on our bus, we were getting people were mooning us, pulling their pants down. <laughs> Seriously? Well, that place yeah. is notorious. It, it's not an easy. They they tell you before you come out of the oh locker room. My you make sure you go from the locker room to the bus. Don't hang around outside because <laughs> you never know what might happen to you. They, their fans are uh, they're pretty uh, pretty good fans. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Well, uh, you know, I just I I'm just pinching myself right now that I got to have this conversation with the two of you and. Um, I know uh, that our audience is going to enjoy it as, as much as I have. I really can't thank you enough for taking the time and just, you know, being who you are, both of you, your authentic selves and speaking from your heart and speaking the truth and, 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 and giving us a little bit of levity and fun at a time when I think we certainly could use it. Well, James and I go back a long ways and, uh, you and I do as well, Linda, and I, I'm glad I was able to be a part of this, um. I love what you're doing with your show, trying to trying to get out the, the perspective of a lot of different people and, and making people be honest about what's going on in our world today. And uh, I thank you for our friendship that's gone on for so many years, and I hopefully it just keeps continuing. Thank you so much, Warren. 
Linda, just thank you so much for having the two of us on together. Uh, it's, it's not often enough where I get to do something with Warren. And it's crazy to think that you look up to somebody who you're the same age as, but Warren was, you know, a great friend. And I remember playing him at Hamilton High School in 1973. And one of my teammates asked me, how come you can't throw the ball like they, their quarterback can? <laughs> <laughs> so you definitely the have half, the second half of that check. I have to send him. <laughs> yeah, right. And we come and we come full circle. So go, go, yeah, go finish writing those checks. Yeah. Go finish writing those checks. Hey guys, just all the best to both of you and your families. Please stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane. And, um, and keep us posted on all that you're doing and whatever we can do to support you in, uh, in all that you do. So love you both so much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Linda. Love you too. Wasn't that fun? I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. They're both really terrific guys. So um, I think this is a good time for us to take a little bit of a break uh, this summer we're a little bit tired, and so we need to regroup and take a bit of a vacation. So over the next couple of weeks or so, um, we're going to be doing that. But in the meantime, what I would love it is if you would go to our website, ourvoicesmatterpodcast.com, and click on a new little icon that we have in the upper left-hand corner that allows you to record a question or a comment. Um, I would love to hear from you. As they say, ask me anything. And we will use your, um, your questions and your comments in a future episode. So again, ourvoicesmatterpodcast.com. We're going to take a break. And I look forward to seeing you when we get back. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, stay sane, stay masked up. See you soon.